Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Gold Connection, where we share stories of humanism and healthcare, as well as tools and lessons for students, clinicians, and leaders. The Gold Connection is produced by the Gold Humanism Honor Society, a program of the Arnold P. Gold Foundation. My name is Helen, and I'm your host. Today, as a part of our recognition of National Suicide Prevention Month, we have a special episode for you on wellness and connection. As our Gold community knows, healthcare professionals are at much higher risk for burnout, depression, and suicide than the general population. This episode features two experts from the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Are you in MC? Dr. Kenneth Zoha is a pediatrician and addiction medicine physician, and Dr. Stephen Wingle, who is a geriatric psychiatrist and assistant vice chancellor for wellness at UNMC and the University of Nebraska at Omaha. Dr. Wingle is also a member of the Gold Humanism Honor Society Wellness Committee. In the conversation today, Drs. Wingle and Zuha share their personal stories, tips to foster connection and wellness, and resources to help prevent burnout, depression, and suicide. We are grateful that they have shared their insights. Hello. So, Steve Wingle, I'm a geriatric psychiatrist at the University of Nebraska Medical Center and uh, delighted to be here with a friend and colleague, Dr. Ken Zuha. So, Ken, you want to say hello to our uh, listening audience? Yeah, hi, Steve. I'm uh, Ken Zuha. I'm a pediatrician, but also uh, board certified in addiction medicine and work at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, um, running a addiction medicine fellowship and, and uh, get a, the opportunity to teach, which I'm really grateful for. So. It is great, isn't it, that we get yeah. to, uh, you know, get to influence the next generation. We hope, you know, hope that we're doing a really good job of uh, yeah. teaching them what we've learned over many years. I won't, I won't ask you to volunteer how many years, but 30 years uh, for me practicing and still practicing, I would say, still trying to get it right. But, uh, you know, it's a great thing. It's a great career to be in and to be able to help people and to try to help the next generation kind of learn, learn from us. So I'm um, so true, you know, and I, I got the opportunity to make a career change from a clinical life into uh, academic medicine, you know, three years ago. So um, it's it's been a really uh, big ride for me, too. So I'm just really grateful to be here. That's a really good point, because, you know, not too many pediatricians work in an academic psychiatry department. Right. Uh, right, right. We are so, so lucky to have you. So yeah. fortunate. And uh, you've done just great things for our institution here at the University yeah. of Nebraska. But. Uh, you know, I've gotten to know you over those last three years and we're just for the listening audience, we're work buddies. We set up a, a buddy system in our department during yeah. the pandemic, you know, and I, I'm privileged and, and really enjoy our weekly get togethers, kind of check in on one another, make sure we're doing okay. Uh, yeah. so I've gotten to know you, know you over this last couple of years with that, which is, which is great. Yeah. Um, but, but. Tell us your story, if you don't mind, Ken. You know how did a how did a pediatrician wind up in a in a psychiatry department? Uh, you've got a really, I think, compelling story, and I know our listeners are gonna gonna really be riveted uh, to hear your story. Yeah, well, Steve, you know it's interesting. I'm I'm setting up to um, do 
um, a, a quick brief kind of thing in, in just a day. Um, and, and so I thought I would just run through that um, and give me a chance to kind of talk about this and, and see how it flows. So, um, so, you know, just kind of looking back, I, I really know alcohol affected me differently than my friends, you know, they stopped and I didn't. <laughs> and then um, I had a severe back injury in high school introduced me to the power of opioids to alleviate my pain and anxiety and just made me feel better than I thought was possible. Um, college and medical schools were perfect backdrops for drinking for me. You know, mm -hmm. studies show that 90% of college or medical students drink and a third of them binge drink. And, and that was just a perfect backdrop for me, kind of normalized my drinking for me. But I'll say I started living a double life around the time um, after I got into clinical practice, uh, my wife became ill with cancer and she died two months later. And alcohol and opioids helped me deal with the grief and the anger and the fear of how he's going to raise four kids um, and, and continue to work. Um, I really I spent all my time trying to look superhuman during the daytime and, and make sure I had enough alcohol and opioids to sustain this unsustainable life when I really should have been spending all my energy caring for my kids. Um, I rationalized really that, that if I was using these, these substances to treat my pain and, and both emotional and physical, it was okay. But I also feared that if anyone found out what I was doing, that, that I'd be devastated. Um, really years of competition um, caused me to think of reputation and knowledge and prestige as deities. Um, and so it was really difficult kind of time. I'm thinking about also my family. My family's just riddled with alcoholism. My, my parents escaped the alcoholism part, but they unintentionally taught me that people who couldn't control the drinking were stupid and foolish and bad. Mm -hmm. The thought that I might embody that really fueled my drive to hide that from my family and, and uh, just made it so I just couldn't reach out for help. Um, I, I would say that stigmatizing uh, attitude was amplified in medical schools. I watched an attending I admire admonish a peer who had been caught using opioids and, and stating that that physician should never work again as a physician. Mm -hmm. And subsequently, when, when this happened, I feared the worst. I feared that the physicians in my community and my hospital would look, think of me as less than for my disease. Yes. Stigma led to shame. Yes. Um, and, and that told me I was a mistake rather than a person who had a disease and making a mistake. And so I kind of lived in those shadows for a long time. Mm. I, I initially found recovery. Um, when a cataclysmic pivotal event happened, um, I got caught writing fraudulent prescriptions by pharmacy staff. And so I went to treatment reluctantly. I thought I was too important um, to be gone for very long. Um, I had my kids in my practice. Um, but I, I will say that that cataclysmic pivotal event is, is that leads to a physician's diagnosis of substance use disorder and hitting bottom is the rule. The exception is that we reach out for help before something bad happens. Um, and, and, I, and, and I, you know, I, I think that fear of just not being good enough, of being that weak, stupid person that I learned about from my parents and from other folks um, mm -hmm. kept me from, from reaching out. But, but my partners accepted me back into my practice after I went to treatment and I held it together. Wow. Unfortunately, 15 years later, I thought I was better and I stopped treating my disease and the cycle of relapse happened. And then I ended up um, going back to opioids and, and adding stimulants, mm -hmm. um, writing prescriptions in my kids' names and signing my partner's name to the pad. Uh, and this time the consequences were severe. And so after my treatment, my, my license um, to practice was suspended and placed on probation. Mm -hmm. The DA felt I was unsafe with a prescription pad and, and my practice 
gently, very gently informed me that maybe I should think about another profession. Mm. The hospital in my community really confirmed my fears with a letter that stated that I was just permanently barred from privileges. Um, mm. and, and so it was, a, it, was a, it was a thing where I really felt I deserved those consequences and so much more. So then I was stuck with this realization that I might never work as a physician again. Um, depression was a constant companion during that time. Um, however, also during that treatment is when the solution started to happen. So I, I learned about humility and grace during that time. So humility became manifest for me and the ability to ask for help, mostly due to the depths of despair I was feeling. Grace entered in um, the realization that there's a resourcefulness, not in being the smartest and knowing it all, but of knowing who to ask for help and the courage to do so. And so it was in that space that I launched what I thought was going to be my second career at counseling. And, but as I was going to school to learn that very noble profession, the planets aligned. I got hired as a medical director for a series of treatment centers for adolescents. Mm -hmm. It allowed me to become board certified in addiction medicine. And six years later, I'm at the med center with the honor of being able to um, be the program director for an addiction medicine fellowship. I will say, though, that none of that would have been possible without my wife and my family and, and now this daily treatment that's an integral part of my life. And today I realize that I have, if I'd have reached out for help sooner, I wouldn't have had to go through so much pain, experience so many sanctions. And so, you know, we're going to talk today about LifeBridge. It's a program in Nebraska designed for physicians who have mental health and substance use disorders, a, a way to reach out without having the fear of, of something bad happening. Um, we're really lucky to have that because they see these conditions as really no different than, than physicians who have other health conditions. Um, so with that program in mind, I now use my journey to teach medical students and residents and fellows at our university about stigma and about substance use disorder and healthcare professionals. And, and with all the support that I've gotten here I, and I now know is available, there's really no reason that reaching out for help, you know, can't become the rule rather than the exception um, that, that this cataclysmic pivotal event doesn't have to happen for help to be found. And, and it's, it's in this space that I really, I understand now that reaching out for help, not only is the courageous thing to do, it's the only option. And, and that's what I try to get across when I teach folks. And so that's kind of my story in a nutshell. Um, <laughs> that, yeah, is a, yeah. that is a courageous uh, story indeed. And I've heard much, but not all of that before. And I, every time I hear it, I just am always inspired, Ken. And I know you've been teaching, you mentioned medical students, and you sit down literally with a group of, uh, you know, a dozen or dozen and a half medical students every six weeks when they come to our clerkship, and you tell them very forthright this same story. And I think oftentimes that may be the first time, other than I know you get in front of them, even as first year students too, and tell them your story. But I think that may be sometimes the only time a medical student can go through, you know, medical school and hear something so uh, refreshingly honest about uh, dealing with substance use, uh, mental health issues, all those sorts of things. Yeah. And we keep this stuff to ourselves, right? And right. as you were talking, this reminded me of, you, you mentioned uh, sometimes, again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but about feeling not good enough and things like that, which made me think of imposter syndrome or the imposter phenomenon, which right. I think most of us probably have. I certainly have it. I've uh, experienced this many times in my career in medical school and beyond, and even up until up until up to now. Yeah. Well, that sense that, uh, you know, you're not as smart as other people around you. You're not as good. You're not as conscientious or whatever it is. 
right? So I think uh, I think it's really rampant in the helping professions. It's not just medicine, but the helping professions. Um, and it really can drive treatment underground, like either not get treatment at all, or uh, or you know, I've heard heard tales of physicians that if they finally do decide to get treatment for a mental health problem or a substance problem, that they'll go to another city. They'll drive to another city where nobody knows them. They'll use a fake name. They'll pay cash. So, you know, just we go to these great links to avoid uh, the guilt and shame. You mentioned guilt and shame earlier, too. And I think that's why I think we're we're really prone to that. We're really prone to that. A- absolutely, Steve. You know, and, and, and you know, I, I would think that one, one of the things that you've taught me kind of as as this wellness person is one of the things we really need to do is battle the stigma surrounding all these things. You know, that imposter syndrome, um, you know, I think now. Just if, if I forget um, to do something I was supposed to do, um, just how much I can still beat myself up about something simple as that, just being a human being, you know, we, we kind of think that we're supposed to be more than human beings, this superhuman kind of thing that I talked about in that story. And, and that's impossible, right? That's right. just no way to sustain that. Um, uh, and, and so eventually something cracks. And, and I think, you know, that that's probably the first thing that I try to work on or talk with students about it is, is that whole stigma piece and, and talk about um, the culture that sort of says that, you know, you, you can't make a mistake or you can't have a weakness or, you know, your patient care and, and your family come way above your, your own health when it's actually, it has to be the opposite, you know? Yeah, boy, so well said. It's kind of like reminds me of, uh, uh, there's a saying, I guess, in, in the arts, the performing arts, the show must go on, you know, so you're a Broadway performer, but you know, your favorite uncle just died, but you still got the show, you got the two o'clock matinee, so the show must go on, right? That's true here in medicine. I think that the show must go on. We've got people needing our help and we just, we work when we're hurt. It's kind yeah. of like an athlete playing when they're hurt, but we work when we're hurt and we, yeah. we put our game face on and, you know, there's always this story about, you know, two physicians meeting in the hallway and busy day in the hospital, they meet going, going, you know, passing in the hall. How are you doing? Fine. How are you doing? Fine. And we keep moving. Yeah. So sometimes we're not so fine, I think. Right. right. Well, you know, one of the other things I think about with, with just the, the things we talk about with students a little bit is, you know, I don't know. I'd be interested to hear what you remember from medical school uh, about substance use disorder in, in physicians. I, I remember a one hour video mm-hmm. about um, this doc <laughs> with alcoholism who ends up like losing his family and, and getting run out of town um, because of, of his alcoholism. And, and, you know, I took a, um, an elective my fourth year that sort of focused on it a little bit, but that, that was, that was pretty much it. And, and so not, not that that would have changed the trajectory, but maybe it would have for me, if I'd had a little bit more education that, you know, it's, you have a disease and, and, and that's the way it is. And so I don't know, what what was your experience uh, in medical school and, and, and what do you, how do you think it's different now? Yeah, boy, that's a great question. I'm thinking back. So I went to medical school back in the early 80s, you know, so uh, I, I remember a single lecture. I do remember we, we had a, a, fac- a fairly senior and very highly respected faculty member that did talk about his own uh, struggles with alcohol use disorder, as we now call it. Back then, it was called alcoholism, I guess, but alcohol yeah. use disorder. And, you know, again, somebody that 
Had he not told us, we wouldn't have known that because, again, highly respected person, probably in his late 50s, that was a full professor and all that sort of thing. But short of that, I don't really, uh, you know, I don't really remember getting a lot of uh, education about, you know, certainly not about, you know, other mental health conditions, about physician suicide, any of that sort of thing. I think things are changing or things have changed quite a bit. We've got a ways to go, but... Yeah. I think back then it was like, you do not talk about these things in public. It is really, it's kind of part of the physician culture is you keep that sort of thing under wraps. You know, you yeah. don't talk about it. Well, there's, there's actually been some studies, all, not, not, but looking at physicians' self-disclosure of mental health uh, mm-hmm. uh, issues, um, your psychiatric diagnoses and treatment. And, and that shows that uh, students have a different attitude about that, uh, less stigmatizing attitude and um, more open about talking about it. If they have a professor uh, or an attending or, or, you know, faculty member who discloses their own issues. And, you know, I I have to believe that that probably is true for substance use disorders as well, um, that, that, that would open up some stuff and, and change student, um, thoughts and, and, and beliefs about that. And, and I think that's really important, uh, I think, to show, just like you said, that you know, physicians can have mental health or substance use disorders and, and um, it, you know, seek treatment and, and, and continue to treat their current chronic condition and, 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 and do well. And, and I think it's important to show that. I think, I think that's right. That hope, there, there is hope, right? These are not right terminal conditions, so to speak. Right. Uh, right. But I think physicians, we, we tend to have this sense that, yeah, if I, if I'm out either because of a mental health condition or anything else, even sometimes it, we, it seems like we have this sense that we're, you know, one step away from losing our license, whether it's again, because of mental health problem, substance problem, uh, accidentally, you know, uh, committing, you know, making, making error. Like you said, we're always so worried about keeping making errors because we're conscientious. We don't want to hurt anyone. Don't want to make an error. But I think we we oftentimes struggle. I know I have that sense like, boy, this career, this marvelous career that I have could disappear tomorrow. You know, if, if just, but, but for that one thing, that one thing. It's well, tough. you know, Steve, uh, as I, I'm, I'm sorry to cut in on you, but oh. as I, I think about your career and, and being vice chair of wellness for, for our campuses here, I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit about kind of how you got into the role you're at right now. And, and uh, cause you, you do that so well, you know, the wellness piece is such a, a blessing for our campus and, and just kind of how you got there. Well, 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 thank you for saying that it's um, it's, it's an interesting trajectory. You know, we all have our own trajectories and I, you know, in all honesty, one of the reasons why I got into kind of more prevention and stress management, resilience building, things like meditation and mindfulness was quite selfishly, quite selfishly to treat some of my own stress and anxiety. And, you know, I remember being an undergraduate many, many years ago, I guess in the late 70s, early 80s. So going to college, you know, doing the, the usual pre-med thing. I enjoyed college a lot, but I was quite anxious. I don't know that I would have put the put put a, a diagnostic term on it because I wasn't that sophisticated back then, even though I was a psychology major, but I was pretty anxious. 
And, you know, I, I don't know that I even knew that college counseling existed. If, if I did know it, I probably just felt like, well, that's not for me for some reason. I probably could have really benefited from it. So instead, though, I stumbled upon a book on meditation written by a cardiologist named Herbert Benson, Herbert Benson, who was uh, actually at Harvard. He was at Harvard. He, he studied meditation in his patients with high blood pressure. Yeah. And he found that people that meditated for 10 to 20, 10 or 20 minutes a day oftentimes could bring their systolic blood pressures down and keep them down because they would manage their stress better. And, uh, you know, he was doing this, mind you, back in the 70s when this was not, nowadays mindfulness and meditation are kind of household words, but back then they really weren't, especially I think on the East Coast, you know, in the Ivy, Ivy League campuses. But he kind of fought the tide. His mentors told him not to do that, not to do that kind of research because it was sort of out there, you know, so to speak. But he kept doing it. So anyway, I stumbled on his book and I read about it. And he talked about the science of cortisol and stress and uh, the autonomic nervous system and the fight or flights and all that stuff, which was all new to me. And then had an antidote. So do this very simple breathing exercise for about 10, 20 minutes a day. So I started doing it back then and I found it really worked. Didn't make it all go away. Didn't make me completely not anxious, but it made me made things a lot better. Yeah. And so I've kind of started been doing that for many years off and on. And, and then uh, when I became a psychiatrist, then I started using some of these techniques with my patients and kind of coaching them a little bit in addition to prescribing medication and all. And because of, I guess, my, my interest in this, the, the, the university three years ago, about the time you came, I guess, about three years ago, the, our campus said, gosh, you know, we really like to have a point person that can help us come up with some strategies because recognizing burnout rates are high, rates of depression and anxiety are high in healthcare, always have been. We're, no, we're not immune from that uh, here. And so they asked me to take on that role. So I spend half my time doing geriatric psychiatry, the other half doing kind of wellness things for our campus. Um, and that's been, it's been, it's been really an interesting job, I would say. And it's, uh, you know, I'm really privileged to be able to to do it, but it takes a team and I don't do it by myself. I've got a couple of really good, uh, psychologists, uh, that really, that, you know, you know, Dr. Quartz, Dr. Deliza, they're really good, but you know, the, I think the best part of my job is I get to work with other really conscientious, empathic people like you. And like people in some of the other colleges, the nursing school, the pharmacy school and so forth, you know, because there's a lot of people interested in this topic nowadays. It's really, I think the pandemic maybe has brought out the interest because I think we're all kind of more stressed than usual because of the pandemic. So it's, it's, it's allowed us to talk more freely, I think, about stress and anxiety. And so part of my job, though, anyway, is that is to kind of round up the people that are already interested in this and supporting them any way I can, giving them some some tools that can help them in their work. I can't do it all and, 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 you know, wouldn't even try to, but if nothing else, I get to work with a lot of other really good people that are already in the trenches doing a lot of this work and do my best to try to support them a little bit. Yeah. That's, that's just really amazing. Um, pretty cool stuff. And, and I know I've been in a couple of trainings that you have um, been part of and they, they've just been really good, um, really helpful for me. Um, so yeah, that's really great. Well, yeah, I can say it's a fun thing. And, and quite honestly, I, you know, uh, I, I try to employ these techniques myself. And if nothing else, I can kind of share with people my own experiences. So I try to be, you know, uh, transparent and, and, and sharing and talk about imposter syndrome that I have and stress that I have, just like you do. I'm not as, I, I mean, you are the king when it comes to really just kind of being out there and being really courageous enough to share your story. I've learned so much from you. And I think uh, I am trying to do more and more of that myself. And I think it really helps. I think when people realize they're not alone, 
you know, I'm not the only one that struggles with fill in the blank, a substance problem, uh, worries about my license, worried about worries about getting treatment and lose, losing license, my license, uh, whatever it may be. You know, we all struggle with various variations on that theme, I think. And to hear you're not alone, I think that's really powerful. I think that's really, really super powerful. Yeah, absolutely. You know, st- stigma, I think and it's a, it's an interesting topic, but it's, yeah. it's such a big part of all of this, um, I, I think, because, you know, stigma, the, the couple of components to that are first that that somehow you caused what's happening, yeah, yeah. especially yeah, yeah. for like substance use disorders. You know, you're the one that chose to start drinking. You're the one yeah. that started taking opioids. And then that you the other on the other hand, that you can control it. You know, yeah. so we've got the just say no, um, kind of deal or the scared straight, like, you know, you can scare yourself out of your disease or whatever. And, and so, um, when, when we're struggling uh, with something that we have this kind of deal, well, this is something that my patients have, but not me. And, mm-hmm. um, this is something that I should be able to control because, you know, my willpower and my brain got me through school mm-hmm. and, and residency and, and just, so right. I should be able to handle this. And so yeah. not being able to handle that, I think is such a, um, you know, um, an important, um, I think lesson. And so when we look at stigma and, and, and kind of like, okay, how, how do we reduce stigma? How do we help with that? One of the, one of the strategies we know works is exposing people, uh, to folks that are in recovery from the stigmatizing condition. So, uh, when you can expose folks to people in longer term recovery from substance use disorder, or, um, you know, somebody who's struggled with depression in the past and, and, and is doing well now, you know, just uh, uh, over time, um, our, our students and residents, their exposure to substance use disorder, a lot of times is just in the emergency room or on the wards yes. where they, um, get to see, um, and treat those patients who have the most severe disease, um, yes. just like anything else, substance use disorders have people have who have severe disease. And, and so um, they uh, come away from that, that people with substance use disorders don't get better. Wow. But in fact, they do. And, and so um, if we can expose, um, I, I think, students to, again, people that are in uh, recovery over a long term, mm-hmm. I, I think that's really uh, a benefit to help reducing that stigma. Mm-hmm. And, and I think probably is one of the main reasons why I, I tell my story to students is, is to help reduce that stigma uh, and, and, and bring down um, the, those kind of difficult thoughts they might have about people who have substance use disorders, again, and being that, you know, that weak or bad person that, that yes. I thought about um, when, when I hit medical school. And so um, I, I, my hope is, is that, 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 you know, realization that, that, you know, a physician can, can have this uh, disease uh, recover, find recovery, you know, take care and then continue to treat their disease and, and work, I think is a, a really important lesson and helps reduce the stigma a lot. Boy, I think you said it. Yeah, I think you nailed it. Um, Cause you're right. We don't always see the success stories. Uh, you right. know, uh, right. We see people when they're kind of at their worst at that low, right. low ebb sometimes. Right. Um, but again, I just can't thank you enough for being willing to share your story oh. here Uh you know, this also reminds me something, a number of things you said reminded me of this. A number of years ago, I read about 
a, an article written by Glenn Gabbard. Glenn Gabbard is a, is a well-known academic psychiatrist. Uh, I think he's a psychoanalyst and he uh, treats a lot of physicians in his practice. And he wrote a paper a number of years ago talking about the compulsive triad. So he said, most physicians have this, this triad of characteristics, a lot of guilt, a lot of self-doubt, and an exaggerated sense of responsibility. Let me say that again, just because I think it's really, it really resonates with me. A lot of guilt, a lot of self-doubt, and an exaggerated sense of responsibility. Um, you know, when I give, when I mention that to other physicians, I, I you almost always get a lot of head nods saying, yep, yep, sounds like me. And, you know, if you don't have those characteristics when you enter medical school, we will inculcate those in you, right? We kind of never miss the diagnosis, never, never miss, you know, that rare thing, that tumor, that whatever, um, you know, never make a mistake. And certainly we, we strive to be conscientious and to be the best we can be, but you said it earlier, we, we're not perfect. This is an imperfect science. Uh, and you know, you can't be perfect, but we struck, we, when you hold yourself to this impossible standard, uh, and you also have this sense that I, that other people are achieving that standard, but I'm not because you got imposter syndrome. Right. Boy, that's a setup for, for a lot of stress, for sure. One of the important things that I learned that really helped me kind of in the, in the treatment process is sort of the difference between guilt and shame. Hmm. You know, um, shame, uh, again, says that you're a mistake. There's the, the inherently you're wrong. You're bad. Behavior that you wish you wouldn't have done. Uh, <laughs> and you feel uh, bad about it. Uh, and, and there's a tremendous difference because one is you're bad. The other is your behavior could be different. Wow. Um, and, and I think, you know, when you talk about the guilt, uh, that's the first thing that came to my mind is, is do we feel guilty when, when, and I think a lot of people do, a lot of people have a good, strong sense of themselves. And, and, and I think that's an amazing characteristic to have um, for sure. But, but also there's some folks, and I was one of those that, that it wasn't that, that what I did was wrong. It's that I was wrong. And, and mm. um, that is part of my upbringing <laughs> from my grandmother constantly saying shame on you, you know, uh, <laughs> and, right. and that kind of, but you know, there's a lot that goes into, um, and, 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 in and understanding that. And I think recognizing that, 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 um, you know, the mistake doesn't mean you're bad, um, or the forgetting to do something or whatever. It just means that you made a mistake and welcome to wow. the human race, you know, <laughs> <laughs> welcome. I love the way you said that. That is great. I, I, I don't, I think that is an amazing thing you said there, guilt versus shame. And it's yeah. like the shame is kind of intrinsic. It's like, yeah, yeah. I'm bad. I'm yeah. defective in some way versus guilt being, you know, guilt is something that's kind of a, it's an adaptive thing. It's a good thing. Like if you do make a mistake, right. you know, it teaches you from it. So you can maybe try not to make the same mistake again. That's really, that's a great distinction. Ken. Absolutely. Great. You know, as, as I think about, um, you know, and, and, and maybe I think this is a good topic to talk about as I think about just talking with medical students. I mean, one of the first questions when I started to do this um, that I got from students was, so what do, how do I approach my friends, a friend who has yes. something going on? How, how do I talk with somebody? You know, cause I say, you know, one out of 10, one out of 12 physicians is going to struggle with a substance use at mm. some point over their career, which means that you're probably going to be in contact with somebody uh, if, if not yourself, somebody else. And, and mm -hmm. so, you know, I, I think it's really important maybe to, to spend some time on that because um, again, just thinking about some, a physician who has a substance use disorder going on at the time, 
They're, they're worried to death that they're going to be found out, um, worried that they're going to lose their license and their livelihood and their career. Uh, and so um, just constantly paranoid and on the defensive. Yes. If somebody approaches them and says, you know, what? I think we think you're drinking. <laughs> what yeah. do you think somebody's uh, going to do? They're going to automate. But, you know, so what I tell students, and, and, and there's a little bit of data to support this, but is, is, is really... Um, uh, talking more about behaviors from an empathetic standpoint. Um, and, and, you know, um, some of the stuff is objective or subjective, you know, um, you, you're, you know, you're, you're not doing well as a physician. Okay. That's, that's subjective. Um, but um, to say that, you know, Ken, you know, you used to be right on time every morning in the nursery and right on time in the office to start seeing patients. And, you know, we've noticed lately that you've been, late, you know, mm. uh, and, and, um, you were always, you know, dressed nice and, and, and your hair was combed and, and we've noticed that you've been a little more, you know, your dressing is a little bit different and, you know, you're always such a nice guy. And we noticed that you've been, you know, this time when, when the, when the staff person asked you about your schedule, you like snap back at them. And that was mm. so out of character. And, and, and so having specific behaviors and, and then just saying, you know what, I'm just really worried about you. Um, mm-hmm. Is there something going on or is there something that I can help you with? You know, and, and, and when you approach somebody about their objective behaviors um, that, that maybe they can argue with, but you, you know, that, that have um, a specific kind of time, a specific um, sort of uh, thing with it. And you're approaching it for not as a, I think you're drinking, or I think you're doing this, but yes. I'm just really worried about you. Is there something that I can do to help you out? You know, you just seem really stressed. Is there something you want to talk about or something that I can do to help? I think approaching um, folks, and there's much more to, to it than that, obviously, but I, I think approaching folks in that way and, and, and giving people um, a way to kind of think about very specific behaviors and, and objective type of information, yeah. I, I think that, that somebody's going to be much more likely to um, be open and, and maybe um, respond to the question. Um, and, and, you know, initially it might be, nope, fine. You know, just like you said, two physicians crossed in the hallway, you know, both yeah. of them have been awake for 48 hours and, and, you know, how are you fine? How are you fine? Well, you're not because you've been awake, but yeah. you know, um, it's, it's, um, it, it might open up to a conversation later on down the road. Um, and, and, and I'm, I've been impressed with the number of, of students who have come to me with about a friend, or a family member or whatever, after telling my story and then talking mm-hmm. about physician substance use disorder and talking about, you know, how do you approach somebody? Yes. So I, I just think it's really important to kind of think about that and, and think about how you might, because it's a difficult conversation, right? It, it's, it's, you're worried that the person's going to get mad at you, right. create a, then, you know, a difficult relationship and, and, you know, what if I'm wrong? What if nothing's really, you know, hmm. all that stuff that keeps people, I think, from asking that question, you know, right. or, or bringing it up. And so I think we have to give people um, the courage um, and, and, and the knowledge about, and uh, about how, how do you approach somebody? And, and I, I, I spend time, you know, every time, you know, six weeks when we've got students rotating through the psychiatry department talking about some of those things. And so I think it's important. 
I, boy, no kidding. And I think you, you are saving lives by giving them that, that those tools. I've gotten a lot out of this because I, I just, what you just said, you know, so kind of just to recap what I, I've been keeping some notes here, you know, so think about specific behavioral observations you mentioned already. Maybe their grooming has changed. Maybe they're, they're, they're late when they used to be really punctual, just specific behavioral ops with no judgment. Just I've noticed over the last few weeks, something different, some changes in you, right. right? And approach it from an empathic point of view or perspective, right? I'm just worried about you and try to avoid jumping to conclusions or judging them. Like, you know, I, I think you're drinking or are you drinking? You know, just yeah. none of that, just really just kind of opening the door. And, and I think you said, said this before, but let me just ask you this. What, I mean, as you say, sometimes people will not be quite ready to share that if there is something going on in their life, but, but, the fact that you've opened the door, don't you think that makes it easier for them to maybe be willing to approach or to come back a week from now, a month from now and say, you know, I've been truly trying to do this motor through this on my own, but since you asked me, boom, then they maybe can tell you more, you know, then they can open up a little bit. Yeah, I definitely think that that is true. And, and I can think of situations myself where I've seen that happen um, mm-hmm. for sure. When, when, when I've, um, approach folks that way. And so it's mm. just so important to just not be judgmental and, and always just to remember that we're dealing with people who have a neurobiological disease. Uh. Once they've gotten to the spot that an addiction is playing out, um, those behaviors yes. now be, are symptoms. They're not yes. choices, they're symptoms. And, and yes. um, to recognize that now there are behaviors that we don't like um, right. or, or that are not socially acceptable, maybe in some situations, but that they're as a result of the obvious changes we know about with the neurobiology that happens with substance use disorders, as well as mental health disorders, you know, so. That's boy. Thank you for making that point. That is a great point. You know, much like major depression, I think now people accept the fact that other mental health conditions like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder are not disorders of the will. They're not caused by moral weakness or whatever, like we might have thought generations ago. But these are right. biochemical neuro or neurobiological, I think maybe the term you use. So right. absolutely true for substance use disorders, too. These are not moral failings. You know, these are, you know, these are neuro behavior or well again you said it said it really well before these are physical conditions with there is a neurology to this well you know and 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 the second part to that is maybe having a solution ready to go or or, Ah. or plan ready to go and so i mean that's right up your alley steve you know what 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 do we have available in at nebraska medicine at, at our facility that, that could be helpful for folks, you know, so you, you, you see it, you approach somebody, they say, yes, this is what I have yeah. and what, you know? And, and so I think of, of course, as vice chair of wellness, you have a, an incredible handle on these resources. So I, I'd like to hear you, your thoughts about that. You know, that's probably a good thing, a good segue for our last segment here before we close, right, is, you know, what are those, some of those resources? We've got some local ones here, which, you know, help you, which can help people locally that, but which I'll describe just, just briefly, just to give people sort of an example. Um, 
you know, so for example, and I, I take no credit for most of these, these are, these are things other people already have been doing. So I don't want to uh, take anybody else's glory, but we have like a dedicated nurse who actually works within our house officer program. Cause you know, residents, residency is stressful. It was re- is stressful when you were a resident, when I were uh, many years ago, but certainly uh, continues to be. So, you know, our, our graduate medical education program here has a great program where, 24/7, a, a resident that wants to talk and you know can talk to our talk to our house officers assistance program person. Our medical students have a parallel thing that we started. Again, I didn't. I take no credit for it. I think it's a great program. I support it, but I didn't. I I, I can't take the credit for starting it. Our dean did a number of years ago. We have a student wellness advocate, so medical students can drop in and talk to a, a, a senior faculty member just very confidentially. She's not a therapist, but she's just a friendly, approachable person. Or they can text her after hours if they're going through a tough time. You know, uh, but we also have a counseling program that we have uh, been working hard to uh, improve access for students. And of course, with telehealth now, with men, with uh, the pandemic now, students can can talk to a counselor through telehealth, or they can come into the office if they'd rather do it in person. But you know, trying to make it easier for people to get the help they need, try to reduce barriers uh, are really important. You know, our employees get to use an employee assistance program, which is really good, and we stay in contact with them to kind of make sure that our employees can get in quickly with really good therapists. But, but physicians are a different breed though. I would have to say because of the stigma and the the fear of license loss and all that, that you mentioned. Um, And so our, our local medical society here in Omaha, a number of years ago, got a grant. And so they actually have like physicians in Omaha can get uh, online, um, telecounseling or telepsychiatry services for free. So that way they, you know, they, reduces some of those barriers. Like I, they don't have to tell their insurance company that they're getting help, for example. But you mentioned LifeBridge earlier, and I know you've got, you're connected with that. That's a great statewide program here in Nebraska, or among other things, they set up a peer support program, super helpful. And they also worked really hard to uh, change the licensing laws. So now if you're getting a, a, a physician's license, you're applying for a physician's license in Nebraska, you no longer have to talk about you no longer have to answer questions about past treatment for substance problems or depression or whatever used to used to have to do that. But uh, thankfully, we eliminated those those questions. So now you don't you don't have to worry about that. You won't lose your license in Nebraska or you won't have trouble getting your license in Nebraska if you've been treated for, you know, depression, substance use problem, whatever. And I think that's really And that's and again, it's happening all over the country, thankfully, that we're getting rid of some of those arcane uh, licensing problems that really got in the way, really, really got in the way yes. of treatment. Yes. I definitely was a person who had to fill all those things out mm-hmm. and write paragraph after paragraph uh-huh. about, um, why, what happened and how that happened. And, and they were, um, somewhat demoralizing, I, I will say, wow. you know, and so now wow. to have, not have those questions, I think is really good. You know, one of the things that our, our country has for physicians is, is physician health programs. And, and each state mm-hmm. is responsible for their own program. It's mostly for substance use disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Nebraska has been one of those states that, that didn't have a robust program in the past. And, and now we have, we have LifeBridge. Mm-hmm. And, and it's unique um, in that it's a little more robust because we're, we're uh, have substance use disorders, but we've also added mental health disorders into that as well. And, and so, um, 
you know, it, it's, um, I, I think, unique in that way, um, not, not from every program, but unique in that way. And, and some of those programs can be onerous um, and, mm-hmm. and, and difficult. But, um, you know, I, I think just a, a way for people to reach out for help without having to worry about the um, significant consequences, like some of the things that I went through mm-hmm. and, and be able to get the help that you need. Yeah, um, to treat this again, neurobiological disease that needs yes. treatment, you know? And so, um, w- without having to think about what the sanctions might be or, or think about like the board, you know, being able, I don't know, you know, just, just the stuff like that. So I, I just think that, um, we're lucky to have that program. It, yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, but yes, thank you for highlighting that. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, I know we're closing in on our time. There's maybe a couple other resources I wanted to sort of make sure we had a chance to tell folks about. And some of these awesome. I mentioned are kind of local for Omaha and Nebraska. And, listen, and knowing most of our audience is not here in this great state of Nebraska that we, we love, but uh, I know there's people in 49 other states maybe listening to us. Um, but one thing I, when, when, lately when I've been giving talks, uh, I, I like to highlight uh, a national resource that I think we should all have in our phones as a contact, the National Suicide Prevention Helpline, National Suicide Prevention Helpline. So if you simply do a quick Google search on like suicide prevention, it'll take you to that, uh, that website. And I personally put it in my phone just under suicide prevention. So now I don't have to look it up if uh, I've got a colleague that I'm worried about and I want to give them the number if you know, should happen that someday I might need it personally, whatever. It's just, I don't have to go looking it up. It's in my phone. Right. Uh, the number is 800-273-TALK or 8255, 800-273-8255. But you can look it up, the National Suicide Prevention Helpline. It's good for anybody, to, not just physicians. Um, there, There's another, interestingly, there's, there's uh, another website that I really... Uh, have been promoting a lot lately that the VA put out called uh, COVID Coach, COVID Coach, hmm. which is a free app. Again, it's the VA, so it's uh, you know federally funded by grants and such, but it's a really good uh, set of stress management tools. It was originally designed to help people with you know pandemic stress, but any kind of stress doesn't matter. You can take a, a confidential mood 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 mm-hmm. test, you know, mm-hmm. check your depression and anxiety scores, and it'll plot them out. But a lot of stress management tools on there. So COVID Coach, it's available on your app store, no matter what kind of smartphone you have. But then I'd also like to have people check out the Gold Humanism website. Even if you are not a Gold Humanism Honor Society member, go to the website. They've got a lot of really good tools. They've got the suicide helpline number posted there, but they also have some really good um, humanities things. I know there's a a poetry writing uh, contest coming up. And again, as I understand it, you don't have to be a member of the Gold Humanism Society to submit something. But I'm a big believer in the humanities and expressive arts, whether it's, you know, writing poetry or writing our stories out or telling our stories, narrative, things like that. Music, some people get into music, you know, as you know, we started an orchestra here a few years ago, but which was kind of fun. So for some people, that's a good outlet. But I think, you know, we all need a creative outlet and we all need a little bit of hope. I think it all comes down to hope at the end of the day, doesn't it, Ken? And you've given us a lot of hope here. You've just given us a lot of hope. Oh, thank you. Thanks very much. You know, and, and, and the, the, the understanding that we're living in some stressful times. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's always stressful, but some stressful times and, and what you point out, I think it's so important that, that, that prevention and caring for ourselves 
um, is um, a, a big part of just our wellness, you know, and I, I think that that's what you're so good at t- teaching is, yeah. is just the importance of wellness of sleep and um, eating well and, and some exercise and, um, you know, time with our, our, our families and times with time with the things that we love to do. Um, it can be so busy, you know, and so mm-hmm. that we kind of think, okay, I don't have time for that today um, or this week or this month or whatever, you know, and I, I, I can profess that I, I might be guilty of that at times, but Me it's too. just so important to, to, um, to, to make sure that we're, we're caring for ourselves because if, if we're not able to do that, then we're not able to care for others either, you know? Boy, what a what a great note to end on because uh, it is it is easy I think for people especially in the helping professions we're so used to helping other people but you're right we don't always take the time to fill our own bucket you know we're always busy ladling out our bucket of compassion and empathy or whatever you know to other people we always sometimes forget I, again I'm guilty of that too to fill your own bucket a little bit so it's not selfish self care is not selfish right yeah yeah it's a good way of saying it I like that a lot yeah. Well, friend, I tell you, thank you so much again for the the courage and the wisdom to share your story. I think that it was super helpful. Uh, I always enjoy talking with you, and I'm sure our audience will be uh, would say exactly the same thing that I'm sure they've gotten a lot out of this. Uh, I've enjoyed it, so thank you again. And, oh, you're welcome. Thank you. I've enjoyed it tremendously as well. Filled my bucket for the day and. Uh, Go on for the rest of my day with a big smile on my face now. (laughs) Me too, but thanks very much, Ken. Yeah. All right. Take care. Cool. Thank you to Dr. Wingle and Dr. Zuha for your candor and guidance in this important conversation. To anyone listening who needs help or who knows someone in need of help, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week at 1-800-273-8255. We will share more resources mentioned in this podcast in the show notes on the Gold Foundation's website. Thank you for listening. Until next time, take care. The credits for today's episode. Music by Luca Fraula for Follow That Dream. Host and audio editor, Dr. Helen Ransom. Producers, Luisa Tavito and Brianne Alcala. Transcript proofing, Isabella Kovacs. Website support, Jill Levenhagen.